Hello, and welcome to the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast. I'm Abby Brenker. I'm here with Alan Kudan. Hello. And today, we are talking about necromancy. Yeah, we are. Yeah. This, this is a big one. A big one. This one <laughs> took a lot of time for us to put together. Welcome to the Necrostravaganza. Necrostravaganza. We're so excited. We have a lot to get into. We haven't done a two-part episode since the scary scuffle. No, since spiritualism. We haven't done <laughs> a two... Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think the scary scuffle was significantly longer in terms of length than spiritualism. And I think necromancy might blow them all out of the water, to be honest. His outline is very long. Also to be noted that this has been on the list of topics to do for almost since we started doing this podcast. And here we finally are, a year and a half later. That's with right. With the courage to tackle it. <laughs> yep, that's us. <laughs> Uh, Not to drag it out, but I do have some non-necromancy-related things to talk about. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Well, it's exciting. We have a new website. Oh, oh yeah, we do. So, lunaticsproject.com, which has always been our domain, but now, thanks to the help of our friend Nadia Rausa, it has got a full makeover. It's gorgeous, and you can access all of our episodes you can submit stories through it you can get updates from us and you know it kind of encompasses all of the projects within the lunatics project so it's a great home base for us check it out we would love for you all to take a look and i gotta say it looks great it looks great yeah so nadia has tons of creative projects so i'm going to talk about a few so nadia rasa is an artist and has so many cool creative projects going on She is the one who designed the beautiful website, but we want to talk a little bit about some of her projects in case you want to get involved. I, you know what? I do. Okay, here you go. So she has a magazine called One to a Thousand, which is a collaborative community of creators. It's kind of similar to the Lunatics magazine in that, uh, you know, people submit to it and they put together what? So what you're saying is she stole our ideas. (laughs) No, of course not. Of course not. But if you're interested in learning more or submitting work to be considered for their quarterly magazine you can visit one to a thousand dot co and again it's very like her i don't even know how to describe her art but everyone check it out it's gorgeous cool she also has so nadia rousa on instagram is her art handle she also has an instagram handle for her makeup artistry and that's mooncrest co so check her out everywhere again one to a thousand nadia rousa and mooncrest co on instagram and you can find her beautiful work all right Okay, now I also want to talk about this book that I read this week, and it threw me for a loop. I remember. Yeah. I had a big emotional reaction to it. You saying things like, this book threw me for a loop. (laughs) I don't know if I, I don't know if that happened. So it's called My Lovely Wife, written by Samantha Downing, and it is a little bit dark. I will say that. It's about a husband-wife killer team, serial killer team, but... It's a KT KT, but it has the, it has some sort of like the vibe of a true crime, like book, you know, if you were reading that, like this heaviness to it, but it's fiction, it's fiction. And the, the twists throughout, which are, oh, I'm not going to give them why again, this isn't, this is not anything more than me suggesting this book to you because I really loved it but it was hard like when i was reading it i i was very frightened i live alone and i it freaked me out it got in my head and it's weird because you're sort of rooting it's like a psychological mind fuck because you're kind of rooting for the killers because those are the people those are the stories that you're following you know so it's very weird even though you hate them it's i don't know anyway if you're into dark stuff i suggest it that's all i have to say i don't want to give anything away but If you do read it, please get in touch with me because I would love to talk about it with somebody. The other thing I want to talk about Mm. is a podcast called Worst Foot Forward. Oh. It's it's a very fun podcast that celebrates failure, which is, of course, very relatable for every single human being. Speak for yourself. (laughs) Um, They have so many episodes and I actually, this is not like a plug for their website, but I like their website a lot because you can go and sort by genre so because they have so many episodes if you want to like hear about famous failures from film and tv or music for example it makes it you know easier to sort through what you're looking at cool for example an episode i listened to was the world's worst rom-com 
or the world's worst martial arts movie, which I think is one you would actually enjoy listening to. What was the world's worst martial arts movie? I don't want to give. I, don't, I want the people to go and listen. Well, no. Okay, I'll go listen. Okay, great. So anyway, Worst Foot Forward podcast available anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's a very fun, especially if you're, you know, in these COVID wall times, if you need a little bit of a comedic boost, I think it's a good podcast for that. Cool. Yeah. Shall we dive into necromancy now? Okay. Today's sources. The Crazy History of Necromancy Explained by Grunge on YouTube. Necromancy, The Dark Art of Summoning the Dead by Mythology and Fiction Explained on YouTube. Necromantian of Ephira by Atlas Obscura, an academic paper by Andre Kapkar, The Origins of Necromancy or How We Learn to Speak to the Dead, Medieval Necromancy, The Art of Controlling Demons on Scienza.ca, Wikipedia, and a great video series on Norse religion by Arith Harger, and the entire website of norsemythology.org. Okay, so before necromancy, I feel like it's sort of a big word so before we get into it let's define it I, I which is really important because there's a lot of people that confuse necromancy with necrophilia i'm not gonna lie i was one of those at one point in my life well we're about to debunk we're, sorry we're about to let down a lot of people <laughs> if you came here for necro oh, i don't even want to let's pretend you didn't okay necromancy is the magical practice of talking to the dead summoning their spirits as visions or the ability to raise bodies of the dead. In short, any magical interaction between the living and the dead. So it started more as something that meant the ability to commune mm -hmm. with the afterlife, and then it evolved into this broader term of also being able to raise or control the dead. Which is definitely a big shift. What we think of as necromancy now mm -hmm. is also very different from its histories. I keep wanting to say Hollywood is to blame, but that's not entirely true. No. Be there's not that many movies. I mean, there's there's a lot, but there's it's not nearly as ubiquitous in movies as it is in so many other forms of media. Totally. But that's what we think of today when we think we think of, you know, like raising corpses and making them do your bidding. Right. And usually I think now we think of like a necromancer, like this witchy type person who's got glowing eyes and controls the dead right and is also evil which is also right. not the case yeah we're going to talk a lot about that today we first see the roots of the word necromancy in latin and greek necromantia it is a, a great word yeah isn't it there's there's actually like so many different early versions of this word that are pretty badass it's a compound from the greek words necros which with a, means with a k necros yeah n-e-k-r-o-s which means dead body, and mantia, which means divination by means of. So divination by means of the dead. We first see it used by Origen of Alexandria, an early Christian scholar in the 3rd century AD. We also see early examples in the Odyssey, when Odysseus visits the land of dead souls, which we're going to talk about pretty extensively later on. That's in our Greek section. <laughs> Necromancy is a very, I feel like because you have the outline today, you're going to be, Fucking on you're going to be annoying. Okay. Necromancy is a very broad term. It means different things throughout history into different cultures and legends. The thing to keep in mind that it boils down to magic that controls or connects to the dead in some way. For a few visuals to kick things off, you may remember Aragorn convincing the army of the dead to help in battle in their turn of the king. Necromancy. Which I gotta say. What? Don't even. Don't insult the Lord of the Rings, Alan. I, I would never, but there's very little ceremony in what he's doing. I would disagree. <laughs> you, oh, okay. It's not a ritual, but it's a big, it's like his whole character arc. It's a, it's a big deal. It's a very big deal. But he just kind of like strolls up and says, yo, guys. He yeah. has to, I mean, yeah, he doesn't like light he doesn't do a, a ritual but he that's when he claims his throne pretty much it is and the, the whole thing when he like grabs the guy's throat yeah it's fucking fucking eight. Oh, i love them so anytime you see someone summon a skeleton or a corpse so you know even if it's corporeal like winifred sanderson who woke up the corpse of billy butcherson in hocus pocus that is also necromancy 
those are both summoning the dead. One is the form of spirits and one actually someone physical. So just to see, like, again, there's a billion different iterations of how this looks in film and TV. Yeah, most in film and TV and video games and books, most of it is getting the dead to do things for you. Yep. Like weaponizing them sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But in history. Very different. Very different. Shall we get into it? Here we go. So let's start with the early origins, which makes sense. Necromancers are a staple in modern fantasy books and films. Even blockbuster franchises like The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Mummy all dabble in this dark magic. Early versions of the word and practice are not focused, though, on raising the dead. That's something that comes along later. The earliest versions of this practice relate more to people who communicate with the dead, almost more like mediums or spiritual shamans. Most of the time, there is a dark magic connotation with necromancy, but it wasn't always thought of in that way. We see early examples of necromancy across ancient Greece, Rome, Egypt, and Babylon. Shamanism goes back long before Greek antiquity. Some argue that it can be traced back to the era of the Stone Age even. Rituals and beliefs that we can communicate with the dead are some of the oldest belief systems in recorded history, even dating back to Jericho. When's, what's Jer- when, yeah, when's Jericho? Jericho and there's another settlement as well, which are very early human civilizations. We're talking between usually 10,000 and 5,000 BCE, around 7,000 is probably a safe bet. These original practices of necromancy would include a priest entering a trance-like state. The shaman would be able to direct spirits to the afterlife or communicate with them. In ancient Greece, this ritual was called nekia. Nekia. <laughs> and yeah, in the story that I wrote for the Lunatics Library episode that goes with necromancy mm-hmm. is very much about this specific time period. Also similar to the ideals of spiritualism that the dead have a greater insight into the universe than the living. It was thought that through necromancy, shamans would be able to communicate with the dead and seek counsel from the wise spirits who have passed. So we see this over and over again, like all throughout, you know, even when we get to the Greek history of this, Mm -hmm. that people are talking to the dead because they want help from them. They want guidance. And it's very similar to what we talked about in the spiritualism episodes around people wanted to communicate with the dead because the dead have this kind of like higher power of knowledge. They can see like more than you can see on this mortal plane. So as you just keep describing just the early origins, this is so, so similar to the whole section we're going to get into on how necromancy was viewed uh, through the lens of Norse religion. Uh I'm so excited for that part. I mean, you're you're getting a a really good taste of it now where you're just going to have some like fun stories and faces to put to this we love that though it's not certain where the idea of necromancy originated it is largely attributed to shamanism it is unlikely that it has one source of truth but more realistic that it has several different roots that have grown and evolved into our common understanding of this practice shamans were people who are chosen by the spirits themselves to facilitate connections between the living and the dead Shamans were also responsible for handling the souls of those who have parted and making sure that they got to the afterlife safely. Shamanism in itself is a very broad term that refers to cultures across Africa, Australia, South and Central America, and parts of Asia. And most everywhere else. Yeah, seriously. In this ancient time, it was believed that if a person was sick, their soul was either taken back to the realm of the dead or could be stolen by an evil spirit, which is, of course, very dastardly, very dastardly. And also similar to the idea of zombies, the, you know, the thing of your soul being separated from your body and could be stolen. Mm-hmm. The earliest documentation of necromancy is actually very fascinating to me. And this this was a rabbit hole that I that I got into here. Oh, here we go. Here we go. There are two known Neolithic settlements with ruins still intact, which blows my motherfucking mind. Whoa. Can you, like, Neolithic settlements, I spent so much time looking at photos of these. Okay, uh, what rough time period are we talking about? Okay, so this is what we just referenced when we said Jericho. Jericho is a Neolithic site. So we're looking at between 5,000 and 10,000 BCE. Whoa. And that shit still exists. 
They had settlements? Yes. And I am going to tell you about them because they blow my mind. I thought everyone was nomadic then. So there's two main settlements that still exist. One is Jericho. Mm -hmm. And the other is called Katal Hayek, which is in modern day Turkey. And they contain some of the earliest evidence of magical necromancy practices. So because the ruins are still intact, they give researchers a fascinating look at this early time. I mean, I don't know if you know this and it's very off topic, but yeah. why have these survived? I don't know, actually. I will say the ruins that are in Turkey, mm-hmm. there's, let me tell you about them. Let me tell you all about them. Tell me about the ruins in Turkey. So there's 18 layers of them. So essentially when, you know, something started to break, they would build on top of it. So you can see in the ex- excavation photos mm-hmm. that these go down and they built up and it kind of created this uh, hill type bump in the middle of this large plateau so there's 18 layers and here's the fascinating thing you can hang on so we're on a plateau right we're in like the plains yes okay so it's flat flat it's and they just basically build a a little hill like a flat sandy area okay and yeah and, and the hill is is built up i believe because of these layers but the houses and they were houses mm-hmm. were kind of created in this honeycomb like structure okay out of plaster mm-hmm. so there was no doors on the side all the doors were on the roofs and everybody the roof was thought of as like a common area and so they would cook on the roof and and like have gatherings there's no temple space how how do they have doors on the roof and then build on top of their houses to make the next tier well, when it crumbles, they build, they replace it. It's not like 18 stories tall. It's oh, that as oh. things started to destruct, they would just build on top of it, build on top of it, build on top of it. So they, when they wouldn't even sweep the rubble away. So when they're excavating, they just keeps kind of like going down and down. Got it. Wow. Yeah. It's and there's like recreations of what these rooms would have looked like. And to me, they're incredibly advanced and there's like ladder systems and yeah. And you just don't think of when you think of 10,000 years before like the common era, right? So 12,000 years ago, you don't think about that being possible, you know, but it was, and this is my ignorance, but I didn't realize that people from that long ago even built structures to live in. I, I, I thought everybody was fully nomadic. It looks like a city made out of plaster it looks remarkable like different from our you know obviously but mm-hmm. remarkably similar i mean obviously there's other podcasts that are going to be far more <laughs> thorough in this area i just yeah. think it's so interesting that there's yeah any any city at all there's they're not hunter gatherers or if they are they no, they can't be they have to have farming you can't have a city without farming otherwise you have to keep moving where your prey goes I don't know. I didn't read enough about their resources. Actually, no. This makes sense. If they were able to develop such complicated structures and techniques, the only way they could have done that is if they had the secret knowledge of the dead. Well, actually, now that you say that, I think that they were hunters. So let me tell you why we're talking about them. They are some of the earliest examples of death rituals and of death rituals, I Mm -hmm. guess is the best way to say it. So these groups would often tie up a body or wrap it in a basket or some sort of, you know, covering Mm -hmm. after somebody died, or they would simply kind of put the body outside of the city and let it decompose. And then they would take the bones though and bring them back into the house. Need those bones. So, but they were used like assumed in, in sort of like a ritualistic way. So they were kept either under furniture in the house or buried in the earth, but they were kept in the home. Hmm. So there are 10 skulls that have been recovered from these sites, which are covered in plaster. They have shells affixed to the, where their eye sockets are, and they are believed to be painted. But of course, that hasn't lasted over the years. And there are several theories about why this practice existed. One is that it was a way to honor the dead, right? Another is that it was used in connection to hunting. So sort of like a hunting you know, ritual, right? Uh-huh. Or a way to preserve the dead. However, there's also thought could be it could have been more of a magical practice, so to speak, a connection between the living and the dead, or a way to ward off spirits. Hmm. But either way, like regardless of all of that, 
This very complex system of dealing with human remains sheds light on the importance of the dead in the earliest of human societies, you know? Just like elephants. What do you mean? Elephants go to a certain place to die and they have their little elephant graveyards. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how different species and different civilizations... It's, It's in our bones. It's in our bones. And that's why you keep the bones. Should I keep your bones under the bed? <laughs> Put some shells on your skull? I mean, it's pretty full. Uh, of other bones? I don't want to get mixed in with all your other bones. <laughs> Fair enough. So we can't talk about, I think, almost any topic without talking about ancient Greece. I mean, that's not true. Yeah, but it's it's a big resource when it comes to... the. I, I guarantee you the entire episode on the vampire is not going to have any mention <laughs> okay. of ancient Greece. Okay. That's not true. That's uh, Sorry. That's not true at all. We talked about this briefly, but the example of necromancy from the Odyssey is a great example of a more tame version. What's tame about the Odyssey? I mean to say before necromancy becomes a dark art, right? When it's more of a spiritual thing. You mean before Christians come? <laughs> yes, exactly. The Odyssey by Homer is a recurring pinnacle text when it comes to tracing the origins of many of the topics that we cover. Homer's epic poem dates back to the 8th century BCE. In the Odyssey, the character Circe is incredibly powerful, and she is shown to communicate and awaken the dead. That's what she does. When Odysseus crosses paths with her, she teaches him some of her spells and rituals. Circe then directs Odysseus to the underworld and tasks him with performing a Nekia ritual himself multiple times the purpose of this is so that the spirits can give odysseus valuable information about how to return home safely okay so there's one particular ritual that she taught him that i would like to tell you about Mm -hmm. because it sounds very fun oh yeah odysseus digs a trench and fills it with mostly boozy offerings for the dead he starts off by filling it with libations mixed with honey then he does a layer of libations mixed with sweet wine another layer of libations mixed with water and he tops it off with white meal and a promise to send the dead a barren heifer and huge sacrificial pyre when he gets home next he slaughters sheep and adds their blood to this ritual trench and so now of course hordes of dead spirits start to appear and as a final step the sheep are skinned and their flesh is burned in an effort to call upon hades or pluto and his wife persephone now, I'm, I, I can't remember the specifics, so I'm just going to try to fr- free ball this one. Free ball away. Here we go. So when, so he's, he's trying to uh, get the ghost of Tiresias. Mm-hmm. All, all the dead are just like, they're chilling. They're not really paying any attention. And then he pours the blood in, and they're all like, ooh, that's, that's some good blood. Mm-hmm. But he's got the really good blood also. Like, you know. I think like, it's like a, how Bella has the good blood in Twilight. N- no, no, it's from a sheep. Oh, okay. Just like Bella. <laughs> um, and I, is it the same sheep? Maybe he has. Mo- I don't remember if he has multiple sheep or if it's like a really good sheep. Anyways, I know there's something really special about the blood. And so all these ghosts are showing up, including his mom. Well, that's a spoiler alert. That's how he finds out that she's dead. He actually didn't realize she was dead when her ghost appears, which is pretty sad. Yeah, I'm sorry. Spoiler alert for. Spoiler alert. Yep, for a book. <laughs> From the 8th century BCE. Regardless, so she shows up and she she, tr- she tries to drink the blood. And he's like, no, this blood is not for you, mom. And like, <laughs> it's it's tough. It's tough for him because like, he wants to give his mom the blood, but she he can't. It's not for her. It's her fucking Tiresias. Okay. Because the whole reason, like, he, he needs to talk to Tiresias to get home, as you said. But he's only got so much blood. And if his mom drinks all the blood then Tiresias is not going to drink the blood. And Tiresias only talks to him while there's blood. So, like, even when Tiresias finally shows up and he's, like, drinking the blood and, like, you know, Odysseus is, like, asking him, like, a bunch of questions and shit. Yeah. He's, like, you know, he's, he's trying to be, like, you know, slow your roll, dude. Uh, if you drink, you, as soon as you drink all this blood, you're going to walk away. So, you know, he's even having to, like, slow him down. Mm-hmm. You know, because the blood is what is necessary to make these people talk. There you go. Necromancy 101. Actually, we're uh, we're definitely up to 102. So will you read this passage for me, Alan, from the Odyssey? The solemn rites and holy vows we paid to all the phantom nations of the dead. Then died the sheep, a purple torrent flowed, and all the caverns smoked with streaming blood. 
then low, appeared along the dusty coasts, thin, airy shoals of visionary ghosts, fair, pensive youths, and soft, enamored maids, and withered elders, pale and wrinkled shades, ghastly with wounds, the forms of warriors slain stalked with majestic port, a martial train. These and a thousand more swarmed o'er the ground, and all the dire assembly shrieked around, astonished at the sight. I stood aghast, and a cold fear ran shivering through my blood. Straight I command the sacrifice to haste, straight the flayed victims of the flames are cast, and muttered vows and mystic song applied to grisly Pluto and his gloomy bride. That's the Odyssey, book 11. That was very good, Alan. So, quick shout out to my boy Anton Lesser, because he read this whole goddamn book out loud to make the audiobook version which is the best uh audiobook recording of the entire odyssey it's Mm. so fun he reads it with so much passion Mm. and you're just like you're just rooting for odysseus the whole time you're you're on the the ship with him yeah that's a good call it actually because maybe it's high time i give this book another pass and i mean that's the only reason why i read it was because well, I wanted to read Paradise Lost, mm-hmm. and I couldn't do it because Paradise Lost is a fucking slog to get through if you're actually reading it. And it was advised to me to try it in audiobook, and I found what was supposed to be the best best version, and it was by Anton Lesser. Mm-hmm. So just to put a face to this, Anton Lesser plays Kyburn uh, in Game of Thrones, who's Cersei's like evil scientist wizard guy. I wish I had the audiobook in college when I took an entire class on Paradise Lost and had to read it in a huge tome of a book. Yeah, it's impossible. It's, yeah, I mean, it's very, it's a great book because it's so interesting and rock and roll, but it's dense. Just let let Anton Lesser read it to you and you're just going to be like, hell yeah. So yeah, he did that. He did Paradise Lost. He did the Odyssey. He did the Iliad and he's done a ton of other classics. Cool. That's a great Mm -hmm. little suggestion. This is a great example of the type of necromancy we see in tons of Greek and Roman poems. There is no evil or dark connotation to the practice at this point in history. And necromancy is not used to summon an individual, but rather reach the spirits of the underworld. Odysseus unleashes a host of souls from the great beyond with his ritual. And he does, of course, he's after certain people, but those people don't just pop out individually, right? He's also using it to communicate with the dead, right, in order to get valuable insight and wisdom. He is not raising or controlling them to act as an army or to do his bidding. Although I bet he wish he could. Don't we all, right? Yeah. Nekia rituals are represented in many different ways in these early writings. In some cases, they involve eating the bodies of the dead or drinking blood. Other cases show it to be a little bit less brutal, wearing the clothes of those who have passed as a way to trigger the connection. Herodotus's Histories describes the Oracle of the Dead, a much spookier version of the Oracle at Delphi. You'll often see the phrase necromantian come up as it means Oracle of the Dead. So this is also, Alan, Mm. these are what we're about to talk about. Okay. Are actual ruins that exist. Oh. Oh, oh, this thing. Yeah, we talked about this. The necromantian of Archeron or Euphira is an ancient Greek temple used for necromancy. The specific temple was dedicated to Hades and Persephone. They have a sign out saying, necromancy, get your necromancy. (laughs) Most Greek temples of the dead were associated with either Hades or Persephone, the gods of the underworld. This is the same site where Odysseus went to enter the underworld. It sits near three of the five rivers associated with Hades. And just to clarify, like I said, Yes, this is a location described in ancient Greek texts, but it's also a real site discovered by archaeologists. The ruins have 11-foot-thick walls, and there's about 72 square feet of space within, with levels below the earth. Those who believed thought that this temple, located on the banks of the Acheron River, was the entrance to Hades. People would come to this site to talk to their dead ancestors. I, I just want to say it's really interesting that not only has this site survived, but like you can go there yeah you can literally go to the door to hades should we go i mean after I, covid i the thing is like they don't publicize that you can just like walk into the underworld from there mm-hmm. which obviously would is be the point a big cover-up right <laughs> right 
All right, now I have a little uh, Wikipedia quote for you. Ritual use of the Necromantian involved elaborate ceremonies wherein celebrants seeking to speak to the dead would start by gathering in the ziggurat-like temple and consuming a meal of broad beans, pork, barley bread, oysters, and a narcotic compound, which is something that comes up a lot that people would use hallucinogenics in these um, in these rituals quite often. It was... Um... It was actually just a syrup. Syrup? 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 Cough. What is that? Cough syrup? Is like it's, seven just, up? it's lean. <laughs> following a cleansing ceremony. This is still quoting. Following a cleansing ceremony. Oh, yeah. The, sorry. The, the syrup comment was not part of the Wikipedia Not part quote. of the quote. Yeah. Following a cleansing ceremony and the sacrifice of sheep, the faithful would descend through a series of meandering corridors, leaving offerings as they passed through a number of iron gates. The necromantia would pose a series of questions and chant prayers, and the celebrants would then witness the priest arise from the floor and begin to fly through the temple through the use of theatrical cranes. Which, end, end quote. Yeah, what, the, the theatrical cranes part has not been proven not been proven no so for all we know it was straight up magic i don't know one interesting tidbit yes so the, it was ziggurat shaped mm-hmm. so anyone who is unaware of a ziggurat right just picture an aztec pyramid mm-hmm. so unlike egypt which is a lot closer to greece you know with all the very flat sides of the pyramid it's just blocks in tiers and so you find these types of structures all over the world it's like one of the earliest mega structures that humanity builds right and almost always they have some affiliation with the dead isn't it interesting that that kind of stuff just pops up everywhere and has this similar meaning to it like how how broadly were people able to travel at that time you know i mean it's there's there's three easy explanations yeah one it's just a very fundamental way to build a large structure yeah you use blocks you make a really big base the next layer is the same thing just slightly less blocks you know and Mm -hmm. then you just keep building up thing number two these are all had something to do with the dead whether this was sacrificing people to the gods whether this was necromantic rituals maybe that this was this knowledge was given to people through secrets of the dead yeah third aliens well there's a funny i know you're going there with that there's a funny meme on instagram because you know there's all these believers who i shouldn't say it's on instagram it's everywhere it's on the internet there's all these people who think like oh ancient aliens built the pyramids and stuff and the meme is like just because white people couldn't do it doesn't mean it was aliens I mean, yeah. Yeah. Totally. It's funny. But I mean, it, it, I'm, yeah, I've, through this podcast, I've become very interested in this sort of very old history, you know, early civilizations and the structures that they built. Uh, I mean, ziggurats specifically. They're mm-hmm. just so cool. And they're so sturdy. That's why they're still around. Yeah. Should we go? Do a little ziggurat tour of the globe? I mean, yeah, you can literally pick any country. Uh huh. Except the United States. There's ziggurats in the United States. Where? From what modern times? Um, I'm gonna just challenge that. Okay. I'm not gonna provide any proof. Okay. I'm just gonna challenge it. All right. Challenge accepted. Sounds like something your father would say. <laughs> <laughs> so this site in Greece was discovered by archaeologists in the 1950s and believed to be the same temple described by Herodotus and Homer in their works. This is contested, however. Because the geographical locations do not match. This was before GPS. Before GPS, long before. So in the 8th century BC, Necromantian described by Homer, right? We, we get that. In the 5th century, we have the Necromantian described by Herodotus. Late 4th century BC, the site was actually built. And then 167 BC, site burned down by the Romans. The site was built based on the older texts. Interesting. So they took the like the surviving Greek texts and built the site. So the the one that we have today was, was cons- built after the books were written. The books were written. They're not books. They're like they're poems. The poems were written. Yeah. 
I mean, they're books. They're epic poems. They're big. They're big. Yeah. We also see many examples in Roman and Greek texts of catabasis. This is when usually the main character of a story is sent to the underworld for a specific reason on a quest, which often includes interaction with the dead. So, for example, here comes Orpheus. (laughs) Here comes Orpheus. Here comes Orpheus. So before Orpheus, necromancy can also be found in the Bible within the Old Testament. What? Yeah. And the very start of the New Testament. First Samuel chapter 28, verse three through 25. This is a story of a medium named the witch of Endor. The witch of Endor is a consultant of King Saul, the first king of Israel. Saul is a bit of a hypocrite, however, because he outlawed necromancy in Israel. But then he asks the witch of Endor to use her powers to tell him the outcome of an upcoming battle. What a little git. <laughs> git. The wise spirits of the dead revealed that Saul and his sons would perish in the battle. So bad news for Saul. And that grunge mini documentary on YouTube highlights an important evolution within this story. So originally, the witch of Endor is nameless and called in most versions the necromancer or or pianista or sorceress, right? It isn't until the 15th century that she becomes the focus of the story. And the next century, she is given the name Witch of Endor. Isn't so all it, of that comes a lot later. Isn't Endor the planet with all of the Ewoks? Yes, it is. What's the, what's the relation? The She's the witch of the Ewoks. Wow. <laughs> Another early example, this one from Greek mythology, is the tale of Orpheus. Here we go. Orpheus went into the underworld in order to rescue his love. As the story goes, Orpheus lost his head and died. But even in death, his head was used quite often. It still spoke and would be used to secure prophecies. This is an early example of what is now called skull necromancy, the practice of using a head or skull of someone who has died to learn information. Yeah, so basically, carrying a head around to get shit done is all over mythology from everybody. Just like Medusa, they took the head, and they started using it for their own nefarious purposes. Not even nefarious. Just, just that it's almost like a Google Home to ask it questions and get answers. Yeah. Well, which is a key thing of like, once you die, you get to know all the secrets. Mm. And it's just, you, but you need magic to make him talk. Right. Isn't Orpheus the guy that like looked back over his shoulder and like at the very last second and that's why he couldn't rescue the woman he loved? Sounds about right. Sounds like him. Yeah. So we're like, she was the, the instructor, he had like trick somebody. Oh yeah. He did trick somebody by playing a song and oh, they, they just, they challenged him to play a song and it's like, unless it's like the best fucking song ever, then you, you can't, you can't get, get, get your gal. Like Tenacious D. Exactly. That's what the, 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 it was actually based on Tenacious D (laughs) and he's like, yeah, I got, I got this. And he plays a song and it's the greatest song in the world. Um, I'll eat your soul. But but he, but that he they don't like that there was a lot on the line you know mm-hmm. he fucks it up he doesn't he plays a song it's great but it, it's not the best song in the world it, it is everyone loves it okay and they're like okay fine I'll I'll you've you've moved my wife to tears <laughs> uh-huh. says uh you know Hades talking about Persephone right yeah. wait is it Persephone it might be re- it's Persephone yeah but Persephone I have my Greek timelines. All kerfuffled. Kerfuffled. <laughs> um, anyways, so she's like walking. He's like, okay, yeah, you 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 can bring her out of Hades now. That's fine. And so there she, but you can't look at her. You just have to keep uh keep walking the mm-hmm. whole time, right? And you can't look at her until she's out of, until she's out of Hades. Yep. And so, walking, walking, and he's just playing, just playing, right? Yeah. And everything's going great. And towards the end, he gets a little excited because he can see the the exit. It's a little excited, so he gets into a little bit of, of, of a hustle, a little jostle. A little jig, yeah. Yeah, and so he gets a little excited. And so, but at that point, because she had to walk, there was no running. You can't, okay. can't a lot run. of rolls, a lot so, of rolls. Yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of, because that was the thing. They, they knew they were going to they were gonna trip him up somehow. And because he ran a little bit and she was a little stuck walking, he gets ahead of her, too ahead of her. And so he thinks like, oh, I've given it so much time now. Now that I'm out of Hades, I can look back. And he looks back. Uh, a breath too too early and she was just like a toe away from fully being out 
heartbreaking yeah but he deserved it honestly he had rules to follow and yeah and he just fucks it up because he's a, a, a douche because he's a man spartan king cleomenes was believed to have the head of his friend archonides in a jar full of honey he would bring it out to talk through big decisions skulls needed to be prepared in a specific way in order to allow them to be used as post-dead prophets i was gonna ask because like so can you give us the quick diy no I'm just telling you that they need to be prepared in a specific way, but I'm not going to tell you how because that's irresponsible storytelling. I don't want anybody who listens to this podcast decapitating somebody and trying to prepare their skull to be a prophet. Right. But if they're already decapitated, nope. it's just going to go nope. to waste then. Yeah. That's... Bring it to the fertilization center in Oregon. Grow some Venus flytraps in it. All right. <laughs> All right. Shall we talk about Norse mythology? I mean, I, I guess so. Yeah. As, yeah, as, as long as you're just going to, you know, keep us hanging about how to make cool prophet heads. I am. Okay. So let's talk about Norse mythology and necromancy. Okay. So the, um, I, I actually prepared this, this portion. Yep. <laughs> I'm excited to hear it. So similar to Greek mythology. Yes. The... Uh, afterworld of the, the land of the dead if you will mm -hmm. is a physically reachable spot got it um so you can walk into it you can't sort of okay the living can go there okay the dead cannot leave but they're corporeal yeah yes sort of it's so the thing is there's places where the there there's still definitely like sort of like different places yeah but there's places where the realms overlap Oh, interesting. So whether that's like a tomb or a burial mm -hmm. mound or something, yeah, a lot of the necromancy that took place in the Norse religion involved the overlap of in these physical spaces. Cool, I like that. Uh, the the whole idea of the dead existing on a in a completely different like worldly plane mm -hmm. doesn't arrive until Christianity, as usual. Sp well, speaking specifically about Scandinavia, right? Yep. So you were speaking earlier about shamanism. Yes. So in the Norse religion, mm -hmm. the best way to describe shamanism, the most equivalent term is satyr. Okay. And so that's just like the mystical practice of not necessarily communing with the dead because like that, you know, necromancy, necromancy is a subset of satyr. Got it. Okay. okay. So the umbrella term. Satyr is just like magic. Okay. Sort of. Cool. Here is just a quick uh, excerpt from norsemythology.org okay. that does a pretty good uh, explanation of Seder. There were Seder rituals for divination and clairvoyance, for seeking out the hidden, both in the secrets of the mind and in physical locations, for healing the sick, for bringing good luck, for controlling the weather, for calling game animals and fish. Importantly, it could be used for the opposite of these things, to curse an individual or an enterprise, to blight the land and market barren, to introduce illness, to tell false futures, and thus to set their recipients on a road to disaster, to injure, maim, and kill, in domestic disputes and especially in battle. Hmm, okay. So it's just like magic powers. Right, it's a pretty big term, broad mm -hmm. term. Yeah, but again, you know, necromancy was just part of this, yeah. and it wasn't like, if you're a necromancer, necromancer wasn't a term. It's just if you practiced satyr. Right, you could have the power to be a necromancer, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you had the powers of necromancy, but you weren't specialized. No, got it. it it's just like, yeah, you're just you, you freaking wizard. You can do all sorts of magic, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're a freaking wizard. And also, please forgive my um, Norse pronunciations. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best here. And forgive all of my pronunciations in every episode. So I'm I'm trying to add the accent to a few things because it's it's important. Okay. Because so the practices of the practitioners uh -huh. of Seder were called Volva. Okay. Which, if you just Americanize it, is fucking Volva. Yeah. yeah. So Vol it. Volva, uh -huh. right? So just to exemplify that, like, these weren't a, like a shunned people. Mm -hmm. It was almost like an occupation. Got it. So the Volva, uh, and here's a quick quote, wandered from town to town and farm to farm, performing commission acts of magic in exchange for room, board, and often other forms of compensation as well. I liked the idea of 
commission acts of magic. Yeah. It's just, you, you know, it's not like the witch in the woods. Right. It's, it's like, hey, I need you to help me do this thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pay you to do it. Right. I need I need the secrets of the dead stat. It's like modern day witchcraft. Yeah. Hey, read my tarot cards. Hey, read my astrology chart. Here's 50 bucks. Curse the army. Curse, <laughs> curse of the army. Oh, curse the army. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they're not inherently evil. They were both respected and feared. They're just practitioners of magic that were revered as much as the oracles of other cultures would be. Were they feared because they were powerful? Yeah. I mean, just, again, picture it as like a sorcerer. Yeah. Like you don't want to piss off a sorcerer because they can put a curse on your home and then you're screwed. Yeah. But simultaneously, magic was just like a part of everyday life. Right. So you can't see like, ah, it's bad. Right. You're seeking their help. The interesting thing, though, is that the vast majority of these practitioners, these vulva, were women. Cool. Hell uh, yeah. There's there's a word in Norse that is, it just describes unmanliness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's A-R-G-R, arger. Mm-hmm. It describes unmanliness or like... Y- yes. That's the, the it's, it's just not manly. Okay. It's not masculine. Yes. Okay. So the, the most... It's like to, to call someone an otter is a huge taunt, right? Mm-hmm. And it, but the most interesting thing is one of the biggest vulva or in practitioners of Seder in general um, was Odin himself. Mm. So, you know, king of the gods, right? Yeah. And he is doing something that is considered throughout the culture as being unmanly. Mm hmm. Okay, so speaking about Odin yes. and Seder and yes. all these things. Yes. Seder was considered Arger, so not manly, right? Yep, I'm with you. Okay, and so like if you call someone Arger, it's a very serious taunt. And Odin got teased by the other gods about this. Got it. You know. Because they weren't as progressive as we are now. No, I, 100%. So now let's just speak a little bit about Odin. So first and foremost, he is a practitioner of skull necromancy. Oh, hell yeah. He carries around Mimir's severed head. Who's Mimir? So Mimir was this guy that used to guard this well that had the, it was the well of knowledge, right? Yep. And so Mimir is a, a famous uh, for his own knowledge because obviously he's he's drank from his own well. Sure. You know? So yeah, he's, ve- he's very wise. Mm-hmm. So eventually, once he's killed, uh, and I, I forgot how he died, not but, important. Um, it, it it is. It's actually a really cool story, but I can't remember it. Well, for another day. Yep. Um, in our in our Norse mythology deep dive. Yes. After he is decapitated. Yes. Uh, Odin takes the severed head, uses his his knowledge of runes. Sure. Which is very important when dealing with necromancy. Yep. And making the dead speak, and then so he he uses his knowledge of runes, and then he dunks the head into the not the pool. Yeah. Uh, the well of knowledge. Sure. And then after that, Mimir basically comes back to life, but just his head. Yeah. And so he then carries his head around, like, you know, wherever he goes. Like a pet. Sort of. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it hits a pet. Like a parrot. <laughs> yeah. And he can ask him all sorts of things because Mimir was very wise because he had the well. But now that he's dead, he has a very interesting type of knowledge. Let me ask you a question, though. Doesn't isn't Mimir like pissed at Odin for killing him? No, Odin didn't kill him. Oh, he just obtained his head and brought him back to life. Got yeah. it. It's a pretty good arrangement. Yeah. Okay. So in Norse mythology, once you are dead, you get knowledge of all past events. Interesting. So you know, obviously, you can remember your own past, but you get to tap into like the universal collective memory mm-hmm. so you get to you have knowledge of all things that aren't necessary necessarily uh just your own history wow so you know mimir gets as well so he's got all sorts of knowledge about all sorts of stuff but now that he's dead he gets he gets to double dip because he has knowledge of all past events as well cool so he's very wise he's yeah, very wise carrying his a, head around that's a very handy head to have yeah he, he used runes to get the head animate along with the well Mm -hmm. um and just a quick story about how he got knowledge of runes yes is really really badass okay um you've i mean you've you've read american gods oh yes of course and shadow basically does the same ritual that odin did cool and it's really cool he hangs himself for nine days he sacrifices himself to himself 
there's a couple layers on this one. Mm-hmm. But by doing that, he is a, so by going through this crazy physical and mental ordeal, and he literally, you know, dies and comes back because he's immortal. And there's a, there's a, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. He gets now, he gets this secret knowledge of runes. Now you can just print it out from Google. Yeah. So, no, no, you can't. Yeah, I got it. I have the knowledge of runes. Okay. Well, I'll read your runes right now. That's really impressive. <laughs> So now that he has his his knowledge of runes, he's got his his severed head. Uh, he does all sorts of other stuff involving necromancy. So one cool bit is the the tale of Balder yep. and what happens to him. So uh, one day Odin is having like spooky dreams about Balder, right? And Balder is like the golden child. Yeah, everybody loves him. He literally brings sunshine to everyone's life. Not literally. That's that's a different god. But uh, he lights up the room and everyone loves him. And so when Balder is supposed to, well, when he's getting prophecies of Balder's demise, he's like, oh, we, we got to nip this one in the bud. So na- what, naturally, uh, he goes to hell. Yep. Um, H-E-L. Yep. And, it, well, the place, not the woman hell. Yeah, no, I know. It's, it's layers because he's not there to see her. He finds a dead Cirrus, a seer, but a uh, female Cirrus. Yep. So and Cirruses are big practitioners of, of Seder, right? And so he finds a dead one. He then uses what's called Val Galdra. Okay. Which is corpse spells. <laughs> Hell yeah. And he forces her to speak about Baldur's death. Got it. So it's, you know, it's it's kind of cool because you got Odin. Basically, you know, he got teased by other gods being called, you know, Otterger. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's basically being called girly. But this is a guy that like wields corpse spells. Hell yeah. You know, corpse spells are girly. That's, gender gender is a spectrum. That's it's canon. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. That's very cool. I like corpse spells. Yep. So, okay, a, a, enough about Odin. I mean, he, he's, he pops up in just about every myth. He's one of the top two practitioners of Seder. Okay. As far as when it comes to, like, the Pantheon. The second one being Freya. Hell yeah. Love Freya. So, Freya, she has a cool little little myth about her and her practicing of necromancy. Freya is a goddess, by the way, a Norse goddess. Y- yes. Just Th- want people to know. Gotcha. Basically, Freya is is stoop in the sky, right? Uh, she's stoop in the sky? Stoop in the sky. He, uh, he's human. What, what do you mean she's stooping? Stooping. What does that mean? She's she's having relations. <laughs> stooping? Stooping. <laughs> okay. With, with this guy, okay. right? Okay, sure. Um, and, but, you know, she's... She's on the Pantheon. She's a goddess of very high renown. She can't just be stooping anybody. So she she wants to find out this guy's full lineage to make sure that he's worthy. Okay. So she's trying to get this knowledge, right? Yes. And so she awakens this slain giant. Hell yeah. And the I forget what the exact uh, phrasing is, but they keep using the terminology along the lines of the, their tongue was silenced by death. It's like, oh. it's like locked by death. Okay. So, um, and the idea is that when you die, there's like a silencing rune okay. um, that can, makes it so you can't speak and you have to like adjust the rune uh, in order to make them speak, right? So knowledge of runes is very important for necromancy. Incredibly. I see. And so she awakens this giant and the giant doesn't want to speak. They never want to speak. and But she forces them through, you know, magic corpse spells and then the slain giant gives the whole lineage of the of the person and it's like okay the person's good to go cool the giant knew this because once and again entering the realm of the dead you have knowledge of everything past right so there's those are the two main uh characters if you will but one cool thing from norse mythology is also the draugr okay so does that sound familiar to you no okay um it should <laughs> so, dra- you're always testing. Me. Well, no, Draugr are the Norse undead. Okay, and they are all over Skyrim. Oh, oh, gotcha. So, like, whenever you I got, I got stuck on the spider. Yeah, you got stuck on the spider. <laughs> so, whenever you go into any tomb, yeah, uh, Draugr are there. I don't. Oh, that's I died they're at that point. They're too. like zombies. Yeah, yeah, I remember now. In the game, they're like zombies. They're mindless. That's only in the game. In the in the myths. They are very much sentient. Got it. Interesting. Uh, a Draugr is created when the Vard, which is the basically like the soul, okay, is trapped inside the body 
uh, which is very much like a dead husk. Interesting. Just like the zombie stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're bound to their tombs and they cannot leave. Got it. So it's it's just like Skyrim. Yep. Like if you go in, they can't follow you out. Yep. So like th- that's, again, that's canon. Now I want to play Skyrim again. Uh, a Draugr can also be created when a Cirrus sings the Song of the Dead called the Vardloker. The spirit then inhabits its corpse in order to speak and gives the Cirrus secret knowledge. And if there's no corpse available, the Vard can instead possess the Cirrus, uh, very much like a contemporary medium. Uh-huh. And again, this would have to be done in a tomb or a burial mound, right. because those are the only areas that overlap between the land of the living and the land of the dead. One cool account of Draugr are from, uh, I think it's pronounced Hervor Saga. Okay. And it's kind of badass. So you have Hervor, and she's the daughter of a dead king. Okay. And she goes to this haunted island yeah. where her her dead king dad is buried. Okay, I love it. She goes down to the crypt and summons, she summons Draugr, uh, since they are the guardians of the cursed sword Tirfing. Okay, I like a cursed sword too. This, it's, it's really cool. Tirfing is actually a very, very badass. So uh, it can cut through anything. Uh, it never grows dull. Uh, it's but, like the Zelda sword that I can't find, the master sword in Zelda. Well, it's it's cursed. And the reason behind the curse is like really awesome and actually the 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 whole uh Hervar saga uh-huh. was a big inspiration for Lord of the Rings. Oh, cool. It's really cool. Because all the back and forth the reason why it gets cursed is very complicated, but it's really cool. The the curse part is that anytime it's it's drawn from its scabbard, it has to kill someone. Uh, and if like you don't kill someone of your own volition, the sword drives you mad and you go into like a whole berserker rage until the sword is satisfied with blood. And you kill yourself. Oh, I see. So it forces your hand. It forces you mad. I thought it was going to force you to kill yourself, but it just forces you to become murderous. Uh, part of the curse is that it does force you to kill yourself, but only if you're this... It's, com- it's complicated. It's, com- it's all complicated. Very it, complicated. It, it. Okay. But it's a very cursed sword and it comes back and it comes all through history okay anyways hervor summons the draugr which is the dead king and his sentinels because again they're supposed to be guarding the sword yep and she demands the sword as her inheritance oh yeah she then forces them to retrieve the sword from its hiding place which is deep within the earth encased within solid rock oh of course easy easy peasy yeah so you know in this case this is one of the few times we've encountered so far where you're not just trying to get knowledge from the the dead this is a type of necromancy when you're actually summoning an undead being and forcing them to do something right yep and in this case it's pulling a sword out of the stone that's cool just like excalibur just like except it's cursed (laughs) so the only other thing that i will mention because it sounds very similar to some other things that you already brought up are the stia uti okay which are the night sitters oh and these these guys are actually gals. Basically, they go into the wilds or the graveyards and sit and go into a uh, type of trance. And in that trance, the dead would then speak uh, speak to you, um, and they would tell you secrets. I actually started reading a YA novel. I believe it's the Raven Cycle that starts like this, and I didn't get that far because I got distracted by something I had to read for the podcast. But it had the same intro as I never knew. Everything is connected to mythology at the end of the day. You bet. I love that. Thank you for sharing all that Norse mythology. That was very rock and roll. That was just scraping the surface because we were only pertaining to necromancy. Right. Yeah. It's wild. Well, you guys, I think, again, we told you this was going to be a big one, a long one. This is part one. And we're going to come back next week for part two. We are? Oh, yeah, which is going to have more information about the Middle East, about medieval times, about how the church comes and deals with necromancy. And ruins everything. Ruins everything. It used to be so cool. (laughs) Lots of hypocrisy coming next week. Content warning. Well, hang on. Yes. It's still cool. It's cool. Like it, the, the, I don't think we would think necromancy is nearly as cool if the church hadn't like made it like forbidden. It's true. We are attracted to what we can't have. Or shouldn't have. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can follow us at The Lunatics Project on Instagram. 
If you have stories that you want to submit to the show, you can email filmsaboutlunatics at gmail.com or go to lunaticsproject.com slash submit. And submit. And submit them there. (laughs) Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like some bonus content, consider supporting us on Patreon to access our patron-exclusive podcast, Horror Movie Club. Also head to lunaticsproject.com to check out our spooky merch and apparel. You can find us at Lunatics Project on Twitter and TikTok, and The Lunatics Project on Instagram and YouTube, where you'll find our short horror films, cemetery tours, and so much more. And please rate and review. A little feedback goes a long way to help us grow and get more content out there. Our cover art is by Pilar Kep, and musical bumpers are by Michaela Papa and Jordan Moser.